the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today in the first hour, we're going to talk with Zach Elliott. He is the author of Now I See, I should say co-author of Now I See, An Invitation to Life to the Full. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jeff Rogers. He's co-founder of the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking on finding new and innovative ways to combat the, the demand for purchased sex. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. So uh, looking forward to that. Also, we're going to give away our next um, four, family four-pack of tickets to the Gospel Sing Live Along Salem's waterfront, that's the 16th of August, uh, 7 o'clock p.m. Is that right, uh, Clark? 7 o'clock p.m. So we're looking forward to giving some tickets away and seeing you there. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. The second round of the Democratic 2020 presidential primary debates will begin tonight in Detroit at 8 p.m. Eastern time. That's, of course, 6 p.m. our time. Twenty candidates will take the stage over the course of two nights, 10 on Tuesday, 10 on Wednesday. Many of the candidates will be fighting for the spotlight, looking for a breakout moment to make them stand out, which is going to be difficult because they have so little time between them. For some struggling candidates, it may be their last chance to save their campaigns. Some will look Look to make up for disappointing performances in the first round of the debates and look to gain some momentum. The candidates appearing on the stage um, uh, tonight will include Marianne Williamson, Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, former Maryland Representative John Delaney, and Montana Governor Steve Bullock. Sanders and Warren will be at the center of the stage. Tomorrow, the second night of round two of the debates will feature the following candidates. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, former Vice President Joe Biden, California Senator Kamala Harris, Andrew Yang, Hawaii Representative Tulsi, um, I can never say this correctly, Tulsi uh, Gabbard, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, and New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. The candidates appear ready to stop the pleasantries and to go for the jugular in the fight for the Democratic nomination and a moment in the spotlight. Biden and Sanders attacked Senator Kamala Harris' Medicare for All health care plan on Monday almost immediately after it was unveiled. According to Brett Baer, host of Special Report, Biden has the most to lose. Harris has the most to gain from the second round of debates. Again, tonight, 6 o'clock p.m. The war of words between President Trump and House Oversight and Reform Committee Chair Elijah Cummings over the condition of Baltimore and the border crisis has expanded to include Reverend Al Sharpton, a staunch Cummings supporter. Sharpton held a press conference Monday to condemn Trump's criticism of Cummings. Over the weekend, Trump called Baltimore disgusting rat and rodent infested mess, something Bernie Sanders has said before, as did the mayor of the city. Um, uh, 
in any event, uh, ahead of the Sharpton's press conference, the president called the activist a con man and troublemaker. Sharpton replied by calling the president a bigot. Trump then claimed that billions of dollars have been pumped six uh, or 60 uh, into Baltimore. The money was stolen or wasted. Trump tweeted, ask Elijah Cummings where it went. He should investigate himself with his oversight committee. He went on to say Deputy White House Press Secretary Hogan Gidley had advice for uh, Trump critics. Consider Sharpton's history and don't take his advice. Capital One Financial Corporation, the fifth largest U.S. credit card issuer, said Monday that a hacker accessed the personal information of approximately 106 card customers and uh, applicants, one of the largest ever data breaches of a big bank. It's almost becoming ho-hum because it happens with greater frequency. The announcement came the same day the alleged hacker, Paige A. Thompson, was arrested by federal agents in Seattle. The bulk of the exposed data involves information submitted by customers and small businesses in their applications for Capital One credit cards from 2005 through early 2019, the bank said. The information included addresses, dates of birth, and self-reported income. A 13-year-old girl who was killed by a gunman at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in Northern California on Sunday may have inadvertently saved another relative's life by staying behind amid the shooting to walk with a relative who uses a cane, the family said. Kayla Salazar, 13, stayed behind with the shooting to walk with a relative who uses a cane, the family said. She was identified late Monday by the Santa Clara County Coroner's Office as the third victim fatally shot by a 19-year-old Um, whose name I will not mention, while attending the Gilroy Garlic Festival. And Katy Perry is getting in trouble for stealing from music made for the Lord. A jury on Monday found that the uh, pop idol's 2013 hit, Dark Horse, improperly copied a 2009 Christian rap song. Monday's decision settled and settled up arguments rather over how much the singer and other defendants will owe was returned by a nine member federal jury in a Los Angeles courtroom. It came five years after Marcus Gray and two co-authors first sued alleged dark horse stolen from Joyful Noise, a song Gray released under the stage name Flame. Being part of a family that's harassed by a gang isn't enough on its own to qualify for asylum. So says Attorney General William Barr, uh, ruling on Monday in the latest effort by the administration to put a cap on the expanding universe of asylum claims. Mr. Barr overturned a decision by the Board of Immigration Appeals, which had ruled that being part of a targeted family could qualify as a distinct social group, which is a key element of valid asylum claims. And the Trump administration on Monday issued new sanctions against a North Korean official who the United States accuses of aiding Pyongyang's illicit nuclear weapons and ballistic missile research programs. The latest disclosures rather indicate that a senior North Korean official sought to import and export sensitive materials through Vietnam, a matter that is rankling U.S. diplomats working to push North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un back to the negotiating table. And the Senate on Monday failed to override the president's veto of resolutions blocking his arms deal with Saudi Arabia, marking the latest setback for critics of Riyadh. Senators voted 45 to 40, 45 to 39, 46 to 41 on the override attempts, falling well short of the two-thirds majority needed to nix the president's veto. And President Donald Trump granted full pardons Monday to five individuals previously involved in offenses like transporting marijuana and drug trafficking. The president decided John Richard Bub- Bubala, Roy Wayne McKeever, Rodney Takumi, 
Michael Tedesco and Chalmer Lee Williams were worthy of executive grants of clemency after a careful review of the files of each individual, according to an official statement from the Office of the Press Secretary. And the president welcomed 9-11 first responders to the White House on Monday morning as he signed a bill that will ensure continued funding for the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. The bill ensured that first responders suffering from illnesses such as lung disease and cancer as a result of their experiences helping at the site of the 2011 terror attack, or rather the 2001 terror attacks, will continue to receive government aid. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Want to take a moment and give away our next family four-pack of tickets to Gospel Sing Live, the music festival featuring Southern Gospel Music that's coming up on the 16th of August in Salem at the Riverfront Park there. You can come here, some of your favorite Southern Gospel artists, including the Booth Brothers, Tribute Quartet, Wes Hampton of Gaither Vocal Band fame. Enjoy listening on the lawn with your blanket or chair. You can choose reserved seating with chairs already provided. All you need to do is uh, arrive and be seated. Uh, bring your family, your friends, your church group, whomever. You can get tickets at 503-652-8158. You can also go to kpdq.com. But we'd love to give away four tickets right now to the seventh caller, caller number seven, and the number to call 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Once again, 93.9 KPDQ presents Gospel Sing Live, celebrating 50 years of the Gospel Sing program, one of the most um, popular programs on our station. Caller number seven. Well, the executive director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign, or DCCC as it's now called, resigned on Monday after uh, Democratic lawmakers and DCCC staffers lashed out publicly at the organization's leadership over their failure to prioritize racial diversity. Not exactly the optimum time as we're approaching a presidential election, but nonetheless... They're going to start from scratch. And the Trump administration wants to force hospitals to disclose to patients how much they charge for all the supplies, the tests and procedures. Now, that may contribute to your illness before treatment, but nonetheless, it's good to know. A new proposal released on Monday aims to make it easier for patients to shop around for the best price by forcing hospitals to disclose what are often secret rates negotiated with insurance companies. Under the policy, hospitals would be required to post online all charges for all items and services provided by the hospital beginning January 1, 2020. And New York Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo on Monday signed a law that decriminalizes the recreational use of marijuana in the state, but stops short of legalizing the drug. Under the new law, possession of under two ounces of marijuana will be a misdemeanor punishable by a fine. In addition, individuals convicted of certain marijuana-related charges in the past will see those convictions, convictions rather expunged from their records even though it was illegal at the time the infraction took place. And facing mounting public pressure in a fight over equitable pay, U.S. soccer and said the World Cup champion women's national team has been paid more than the men's team. According to a letter released Monday by U.S. soccer president Carlos Cordero, the federation paid out $34.1 million in salary and game bonuses to the women between 2010 and 2018, as opposed to $26.4 million paid to the men. The total doesn't include the value of benefits received only by the women, like health care. 
And on this day in history, in 1729, Baltimore, Maryland, is founded. And on this day in history, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs a bill creating a women's auxiliary agency in the Navy known as the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Services, or WAVES. On this day in 1956, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signs a measure making In God We Trust the national motto replacing E Pluribus Unum, out of the many, one. And on this day in history, 1965, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signs a measure creating Medicare, which began operating the following year in 1966. Well, a federal uh, federal judge in uh, frank terms has dismissed a lawsuit by the Democratic National Committee against key members of the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks over hacked DNC emails, saying they did not participate in any wrongdoing in obtaining the materials in the first place and therefore bore no legal liability for disseminating the information. The ruling came as Democrats have increasingly sought to tie the Trump team to illegally illegal activity in Russia, in spite of special counsel Robert Mueller's findings that the campaign in fact, refused multiple offers by Russians to involve them in hacking and disinformation efforts. The DNC asserted in court filings that the Trump team's meetings with persons connected to the Russian government during the time of the Russian GRU agents were stealing the DNC's information were a sign that they were conspiring with the Russians to steal and disseminate the DNC's material. Uh, That suit did not allege that the stolen materials were false or defamatory, but rather sought to hold the Trump team and other defendants liable for the theft of the DNC's information under various Virginia and federal statutes. However, Judge John Cotel, a Bill Clinton appointee sitting in the Southern District of New York, wrote in his 81-page opinion Tuesday that the DNC's argument was entirely divorced from the facts. The DNC first filed its suit in April of 2018, and the defendants responded that the First Amendment legally protects the dissemination of stolen materials. And ahead of tonight's first of two debates, former Vice President Joseph R. Biden has opened up a 19-point lead over his nearest competitor for the Democratic 2020 presidential nomination, rebounding from a recent dip, according to a poll released Monday, as candidates are prepared to square off in the second primary debate tonight and tomorrow. Mr. Biden was the choice of 34 percent of Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents, followed by Senator Elizabeth Warren at 15 percent, Senator Kamala Harris at 12 percent, and Senator Bernie Sanders at 11 percent, according to the Quinnipiac poll, university poll. Um, Ms. Harris, who had confronted Mr. Biden at the first debate last month over desegregation busing, had pulled to within two points of him in the Quinnipiac poll released earlier this month and taken immediately after that debate. In that poll, Mr. Biden uh, had been at 22 percent, followed by Ms. Harris at 20 percent, Ms. Warren at 14 percent, and Mr. Sanders at 13 percent. In the blink of an eye, the post-debate surge for Senator Kamala Harris fades, and former Vice President Joseph Biden regains his footing among Democratic presidential contenders, an analyst for the Quinnipiac University poll said. In the new poll, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, was next at 6%. Support, former Representative Beto O'Rourke and entrepreneur Andrew Yang, were tied at 2% each, and no other candidate was above 1%. Well, CNN's two-night Democratic primary debate will offer a rematch of former Vice President Joe Biden and California Senator Kamala Harris, whose clash over race became the most closely watched moment of the first round of debates. Biden and Harris will debate in Detroit on Wednesday. 
That's tomorrow. The matchups mean Biden, much like the first debate, will be the center of attention, drawing fire not only from Harris, but also from Cory Booker, who has also shown a willingness to slam the former vice president for comments he made about his ability to uh, be civil and work with segregationist senators. Twenty-four Democrats are running for president, voters and donors like only five of them. The debates will also, for the first time, offer a matchup between Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, the two top progressives in the Democratic primary. The duo, who will debate on Tuesday, were not uh, on the same stage during the first debate. Well, the lineups for each night were announced on air during a live random draw for transparency around the event. There were three distinct draws based on polling, one to divide the top 10 candidates, one to divide the middle six candidates, and one to divide the top four candidates. The 20 candidates who qualified for the debate stage based on rules outlined by the Democratic National Convention were Colorado Senator Michael Bennett Biden, Uh, New Jersey Senator uh, Cory Booker, Montana uh, Governor Steve uh, Bullock, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro, New York uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, former Maryland Representative John Delaney, Hawaii Representative Tusley Cabard, say it different every time, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, Kamala Harris, former Colorado uh, Governor John Hickenlooper, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, um, uh, Warren Sanders, uh, Marianne Williamson, and businessman Andrew Yang. The dynamics of the race are remarkably fluid. The draw leaves Sanders and Biden missing an opportunity to confront one another, but it, will, it promises to be a lively matchup uh, given the fact that this is the second round for these 20 candidates. Um, Thursday, the last debates actually shattered previous Democrat uh, record for debate. So interest in this week's debate, which features 20 candidates over both nights, um, is expected to be rather high here today as well. And in the third round of debates, candidates are going to need to both reach 2% in four polls, acquire donations from 130,000 unique donors, much tougher thresholds to uh, meet their earlier uh, debate uh, numbers. And for the first two rounds, candidates needed to only poll at 1% and acquire 65,000 donors. ABC and Univision are hosting the debate at Texas Southern University. And that third round will be September 12th and 13th. So far, as of uh, July 22nd, the following candidates have met both requirements to be on that stage. And who knows, it may be whittled down to one singular debate if others uh, do not succeed in the days ahead. For Former Vice President Joe Biden, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, California Senator Kamala Harris, former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. These are the only ones thus far who have qualified for what will be the third round of debates at um, Texas Southern University, September 12th and 13th. And again, that one will be hosted by ABC and Univision. Others have reached one of the two requirements, uh, but not both. And so that will determine who will continue on. Meanwhile, Marion Williamson says, I am not a wacky new age nutcase, end quote. Democratic presidential candidate Marion Williamson pushed back against what she described as a false narrative surrounding her, insisting that she is not a wacky new age nutcase. The establishment media sees me as a real threat to the status quo. 
Well, I'm not sure she's competitive enough to get that much consideration, but she went on to say people are so invested in creating this false narrative about me as the crystal lady, wacky new age nutcase. If you really think about it, I must be doing something right that they're so scared, she added. Again, I'm not sure scared would be the right word to apply, but nonetheless, she is a self-help author, a spiritual advisor to Oprah Winfrey. She insisted that the U.S. doesn't need another traditional candidate who will push incremental change, arguing that the current economic system is fundamentally broken. People say our system is broken. It's not just broken. It's corrupt to the core, she said. It's not just that our economy isn't working for everyone. It's that our economy has become completely taken over by corporate forces. So an a, a opportunity to speak to some of the issues, Marianne Williamson is hoping to uh, alter the impression um, that she makes this time around. She did admit that some of the statements she made during the first debate uh, may have lent themselves to the kind of criticism and jokes that followed, but insists that this time around that will not be the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Zach Elliott. He's the author of Now I See, An Invitation to Life to the Full. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest has not arrived, so we're going to press on. By the way, portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and currency. Well, the top echelon of staffers at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee left their jobs on Monday, a shakeup that followed a pair of political stories that detailed some deep unease within the party's campaign apparatus over a lack of diversity. Well, Monday morning, Allison Jaslaw, the executive director and a close ally of Representative Sherry Bustos, chair of the committee, resigned during a tense meeting at the party's Capitol Hill headquarters. And in the next 10 hours, much of the senior staff was out as well. Jared Smith, the communications director, another Bustos ally. Melissa Miller, a top communications aide, Molly Rittner, political director, Nick Pancrazio, uh, deputy executive director, and Van Ornalis, the DCC's, uh, I should say, DCC's three C's anyway, director of diversity. The chief operating officer for the campaign arm will serve as the interim executive director and facilitate the search for a permanent replacement, Busto said in a statement late Monday. Today has been a sobering day filled with tough conversations that too often we avoid, Busto said, but I can say confidently that we are taking the first steps toward uh, putting the DCCC back on the path to protect and expand our majority with a staff that truly reflects the diversity of our Democratic caucus and our party. Rittner was one of two national political directors at the DCCC. Uh, the other national political director is still with the campaign arm, according to multiple sources. And while most of the staff departures are effective immediately, Miller is expected to remain temporarily to help transition the new communications, the new communications uh, uh, director. Senate Democrat uh, leader Tom Udall and minority leader Chuck Schumer um, rallied in front of the U.S. Supreme Court building on Tuesday to announce their plans to introduce an amendment to the Constitution that's aimed at drastically altering the landscape of political contributions. Well, the Democracy for All amendment to be introduced by Udall would allow federal and state governments to set restrictions on fundraising and spending for the purpose of influencing elections. Its goal is to effectively overturn the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United versus Federal Elections Commission, which held that political spending is a type of speech and that corporations and other organizations enjoy First Amendment protection just as people do, as long as their money doesn't go directly to campaigns. Corporations are not people, and your net worth shouldn't determine your right to free speech, Udall said. So they're going to try to oppose that by 
um, establishing law that would uh, not permit it to happen. Udall previously introduced the amendment in 2015. In order for it to become part of the Constitution, it has to receive a two-thirds vote in both the House and the Senate and be ratified by at least 38 states. Also on Tuesday, Udall and Senator Martin Heinrich introduced the Fair Elections Now Act, which would create a new system of public financing for Senate candidates. We've broken a campaign finance system that lets billionaires and corporations exercise outsized influence in our elections, all while hiding in the shadows, he said in a statement regarding the legislation. This bill helps restore public confidence in congressional elections that currently force candidates to constantly chase money for their campaign coffers. Our electoral process, he went on to say, should be fair and open, and the results should ensure every citizen has an equal voice in our democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic. Now, all of that said, if, in fact, they were successful at establishing legislation, I have no doubt there would be a legal challenge. And given the decision already made by the U.S. Supreme Court, I doubt that uh, the law would uh, would hold up under that kind of legal scrutiny. But we'll see what uh, what course this ultimately takes. Well, for the first time since the start of the recession more than a decade ago, the Federal Reservists uh, is uh, poised to cut interest rates in hopes of shielding the 11-year economic expansion from growing global uncertainties. The central bank is expected to announce its decision on interest rates on Wednesday, 2 o'clock Eastern time, 11 o'clock Pacific time. The gradual decrease in the benchmark federal funds rate, economists anticipate the U.S. central bank to lower it by a modest uh, quarter of a percentage point, will end an era of monetary tightening by the policymakers who've uh, voted nine times since 2015 to raise interest rates as recently as December. Well, the next question is going to be, will there be any further cuts after this? That's the chief economist uh, and former Fed staffer asking, I think certainly these numbers will make it very easy to say one and done. We feel good about it. And now we need to let this one cut seep through uh, so that we're going to let the, the uh, that feed through barring any major development. So that announcement is expected at some point uh, tomorrow when the Fed makes its announcement. And a jury on Monday found that Katy Perry, 2013 uh, hit Dark Horse improperly copied a 2009 Christian rap song in a unanimous decision that represented a rare takedown of a pop superstar and her elite producer by a relatively unknown artist, at least in the secular world. The verdict by a nine-member federal jury in a Los Angeles courtroom came five years after Marcus Gray and two co-authors first sued in 2019, alleging Dark Horse stole from their song, Joyful Noise, a song Gray released under the stage name Flame. Well, the case now goes to a penalty phase, where the jury is going to decide how much Perry and other defendants owe for copyright infringement. Questions from the jury during their two full days of deliberations had suggested that they might find out uh, some of the defendants liable for copyright infringement. The uh, case focused on the notes and beats of the song, not its lyrics or recording, and the question suggested that Perry might be off the hook. But in a decision that left many in the courtroom surprised, jurors found all six songwriters and all four corporations that released and distributed the song were liable, including Perry and Sarah Hudson, who wrote only the song's words, and a Juicy J, who only wrote the rap he provided for the song. Perry was not present when the verdict was read, but seemed rather confident that she would win earlier uh, when asked. Other defendants found liable were Capitol Records, as well as Perry's producers, Dr. Luke, Max Martin, and Circuit. 
uh, who came up with the song's beat. Gray's attorney argued that the beat and instrumental line featured through uh, nearly half of the song are substantially similar to those of Joyful Noise. Gray wrote the song with his co-complainants, Emmanuel Lambert and uh, Chaik Ujukwa. Um, and so they are going to be due some uh, substantial penalties or, or uh, remuneration, uh, apparently, following this decision. Now, I understand that my guest has arrived, and in our next two segments, uh, we'll feature that conversation. Again, Zach Elliott is the author of Now I See, An Invitation to Life to the Full. The book is published, uh, published by Lost Poet Press, and looking forward to a conversation um, on that, um, that book. Well, a security alert was issued by federal officials Tuesday focusing on small planes after authorities voiced concerns that modern flight systems are vulnerable to hacking in the event a malicious actor is able to gain physical access to the aircraft. Well, the alert from the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency said that a security flaw of open electronic systems known as the CAN bus Uh, was discovered by a Boston-based cybersecurity company and reported to the federal government, which found the systems are exploitable. Now, there's an interesting app that I just discovered uh, fairly recently that allows me to sit in my backyard and to identify flights that are overhead. It tells me what the... uh, uh, what the plane is, it gives me an image of the plane, um, where they uh, took off from, where they're landing, all these details about the plane. And I've often wondered, is this a security risk? Now, it's probably not because that kind of information would not otherwise be available, but it does uh, certainly raise questions about information that can be gleaned from and whether or not uh, in, uh, one can hack into a system uh, that a small plane uses for their, uh, for their safety in the modern flight systems that are vulnerable to hacking. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Zach Elliott in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm so delighted to have with me in studio Zach Elliott. He is the co-author of Now I See, An Invitation to Life to the Full. Now, what does that mean? We hear about abundant life in scripture. And he makes the point that our souls long for a life that is full and flourishing. But I wonder how many of us could say with confidence and joy, my life is full and flourishing. And this happens to be the condition of the world. Well, this book is an invitation to life to the full. Uh, And through story and metaphor, ancient wisdom, modern understanding, he invites, he and his co-author, invites us on a journey to understand that flourishing is not about circumstance. And we so often link how we're doing to circumstance, but rather it's about relationship. And you can guess where that relationship is going. Well, I'm delighted to uh, to talk about it here today with Zach Elliott. He began his career with the Oregon State Police as a forensic evidence technician. You could have been on television these days. Mm-hmm. He then served as a church planner and a pastor before launching V3, a ministry committed to sharing the gospel and loving the church. He is a husband and father, a speaker and author, a thought leader, engaging the world with a powerful message of hope and restoration in Christ. He has a contagious love of life. He finds beauty in the most unlikely places. And today he joins us to talk about his book. Now I see an invitation to life 
to the full. Zach Elliott, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for welcoming me in. I love it. Thank well, you. Well, this is home to you, and I know you have moved away to Florida. Ministry has called you there, but this really is home for you. It is, and it's so good to be here. We've had such a great uh, last couple of weeks being in Oregon, so every second I can be here, yeah. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, welcome home. We're Thank glad you. you're here. Well, you write in this book what is really a journey. It's not just a story. It's a journey that begins where we all begin. And Uh, The thing that struck me is that it not only applies to those who are outside of the Christian faith, but all of us begin in what you describe, uh, and as Plato described, sort of a cave that we imagine is the whole world and reality uh, as we know it, and we imagine that that's all there is. Talk a little bit about your journey of faith and how you escaped um, the limitations of um, our understanding of uh, what life is into a relationship with Christ. Yeah. I think that for me, Plato did such a good job of describing this really transition that has to take place uh, to come into uh, to the fullness of truth. And so in, in the allegory of the cave, these prisoners are, are trapped and they're shackled and they see only in part. And there's an invitation to see in full, but it, it requires the risk of letting go of what you know and risking stepping into a little bit more mystery in something that you don't know. And as somebody who grew up in the church, I grew up in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, and so I was immersed in uh, a conversation of faith. I had been through catechism and had those conversations, and I could answer questions about faith uh, quickly. You could ask me anything, and I could recite the Apostles' Creed or mm-hmm. talk about this or that in our faith. But it was, at, I say we get it, but we don't have it. And I was one of those people who could say these things that I believed, but they were kind of existed out there in abstraction. And it was a journey of almost recognizing that I was lost inside the church um, until I came face to face with that. I, I describe it in the in the book as the voice that keeps calling you mm-hmm. and that voice that John 9, the man born blind, heard when Jesus spoke to him. And for me, it took me um, kind of growing up in the church But being willing to let the Spirit of God and the Scriptures call me closer and closer and closer until I was before Jesus and really listening to his claim and his question, do you believe? Do you want to see? And I came to that point and said yes and began a journey of really recognizing that he is who he says he is and his offer of life to the full is there, but it's found in him personally. Yeah. Yeah, and the implications of that are just tremendous, but we may not appreciate that until we've made that uh, connection. I like the phrase that you use, lost in the church, because many of us come to sincere um, faith in Christ, and we, we have a relationship through Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven, and yet there's a limit to our understanding of what that abundant life, that fullness of life that we are called to means. We have our own culture within the church that sometimes prevents us from breaking free and experiencing that relationship that this book really calls us to. Why do you think that's the case? I think, you know, first, there's well-intention there to provide structure. And as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 15 years. And so uh, we want to teach. And so we teach via the head level. And that's a good thing. And we're well-intentioned in wanting to disciple and guide people uh, to the truth. But we can never forget that the truth, there's an incarnational nature to truth. And that invites the relational side. And there's risk there from a pastoral side. Mm-hmm. We have to have a higher trust in Jesus, that the same God who finds us and found Paul and finds those who through his spirit, through dreams, visions, God is at work. And we have to trust that Jesus 
that if we introduce people to him, that he will, he will provide them, he'll open their eyes and he'll give them that spiritual insight, that spiritual vision to see him. And that's really what must take place. We can guide them to him. We can use the scripture for teaching, correcting, rebuking, for bringing them rightly to him. But the Spirit of God opens our eyes, and He allows us to see who He really is. I think it's our human nature. When we come to faith in Christ, we sort of continue in the same vein that we've always known, what's familiar to us and what's natural in the flesh. And we don't really realize how dramatic the call is on our life and what He's calling us to. And it's so different and so much broader and fuller than we could ever imagine that sometimes we are comfortable in that cave, if you will, with what's familiar to us, and we don't break free because we still imagine, as we did before we came to Christ, that we can just orchestrate events and circumstances in such a way that we will um, find that that fullness and joy, but it's not quite satisfying. It never quite gets there in the way that we hope and imagine that it will. Yeah, we talk about in the book that we we squat a lot in religion. We use those words, and it's almost uh, Rebecca, who I was in conversation writing the book. We I remember us just writing this on her back porch, and and we were trying to work this part out. And I actually got in a wall sit on the out, you know, sitting against the mm-hmm. outside of her house, and said for so long I felt like that, like I was doing all the right things and working hard to believe all the right things, but it was in my strength holding those things up. And that's exhausting. And there's a lot of people in the church who who are desperate to find rest. You know, we're restless mm-hmm. until we find our rest in him. And he is there. But it does require a letting go of our own holding up our circumstance and our understanding and really trusting the relationship that, that he offers. It's that I'm reminded of the scripture where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and light. And we sometimes really strain at that. It doesn't feel that way for me. It doesn't, that's not how my relationship is moving forward. And I think that's a a signal that maybe we're not experiencing all that he has for us. Maybe our relationship isn't what's driving us. It's more orchestrating our circumstance. Yeah. In Plato's allegory, he describes the difficulty of moving from the truth that you've seen, the fiction in the cave to the the fullness of truth outside of the cave. And he, he talks about how difficult that pivot is and how much harder it is, especially as we build merits and rewards for the cave. And often in culture and in the church, we build in systems that kind of reinforce and keep us in those postures that are putting the weight on us rather than the weight on God. And we're rewarded almost for the wrong things, Mm -hmm. uh, for the things that are almost inhibiting us from finding our ultimate rest in him. And so there's a good conversation to be had. And that's what I think is so exciting about offering this invitation, it's why we felt like now is the time to share it, is the church is having a broad conversation right now, and a good conversation yeah, about yeah. who are we as a people of God, and and what is life to the full, um, and that that has to be true in us first as we enter the world. And that's a really important conversation. What made that change for you? What brought you from the, the metaphorical cave to that fullness that you write about in the book and take us on a journey to explore and walk in. Yeah. For me, I had to, I talk about in the the, the book, there's a difference between being humble and being humbled. Hmm. And you can be piously humble and go to church and recite the things, as I said, but you have, you, we have to be brought to the end of ourselves and realize that he is creator and we are creature. And I talk about the fact that there needs to be a realignment, the recalibration 
And that's a pretty humbling thing. And that's what had to happen to me. I had become pretty confident in my own um, ability, my own mind, even my own righteousness as I found it in the church. It was, you know, veily cloaked, you know, thinly cloaked righteousness as a guy who attends church, but it was resting on me. Mm-hmm. And slowly I had to come face to face with the fact that I was full of quite a bit of pride and quite a bit of rebellion and be brought to the, to truly face that and face the fact that I am creature, he is creator. And it was the encounter of that truth that I would say is the difference between being humble and carrying that load on our own and being humbled where you truly are brought low and you recognize that he, you know, Colossians talks about we were made by him and for him. Mm -hmm. And when you're face to face with that, that unsettles you and it disrupts you. But that's where I had to come. I had to have kind of the stool knocked out from under me and be reminded me that I was creature and or that I am creature and I wasn't here first uh, so that I could come face to face with him. Mm. Again, the, the phrase, we get it, but we don't have it. When you began to um, come out into the light in this more unique way and experience this fullness, was this the, the result of a point where you came to your end? Did you hear God calling in a unique way? What began that journey for you uh, from that uh, place of, of familiarity to this place of unfamiliarity and dependence that results in fullness? Yeah, it, w- it quite literally was that, that whisper. And people talk about hearing from God mm-hmm. and, um, and different people have different ways of discussing that. For me, I was pastoring. I was in my first uh, season as a pastor. I was an associate pastor in a church. And I was doing a lot of doing what I thought was the work of the church, but inside there was not a, there was not a flourishing life in me, and my relationship with God was was dry, very distant, very dry, and it was existing at a head level, and I was operating from kind of head to hands mm-hmm. without the heart and the inner transformation. And the church that I was working in, we were all laboring in that together. And I got to the point where I recognized how that was not sustainable to, for me. And not only that, but that I was not shepherding people into that easy burden and that light yoke that you described, mm-hmm. and that this is not what Jesus was talking about. And I had a crisis moment in my faith and in the church, and I went into my office at the church, I shut the door, and I said, God, I think I'm done. Like, I want to be out. Mm. I cannot do this. I'm going to leave you there. We need to take a break for news and traffic at the hour, but we'll pick it up where you left off. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation with Zach Elliott. He is the co-author of Now I See, An Invitation to Life to the Full. He was a pastor in the Newburgh area for uh, many years, and we're just delighted to have you back here, albeit on vacation, <laughs> but you're back home for a little season. Just before the break, I had asked you a question about how this um, this journey began for you, uh, this transition from uh, allowing circumstance to determine your well-being, if you will, and uh, developing a relationship with Christ in such a way that you're experiencing his fullness. And you were talking about having a crisis moment. You'd gone in, you're, you're in ministry, you're pastoring, you'd gone into your office, you'd closed the door. What happened? Yeah. Well, that day I really had hit that point of saying, I, I cannot continue in the way that I'm currently operating. So I shut the door and I said, God, I think I'm done. I think that it really just praying in conversation with God saying, I think I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And the best thing that I can describe is 
you know, you hear that quiet voice like at the center mm-hmm. of your brain and it's just God speaking and you just hear truth. And I was brought to Proverbs, the end of Proverbs, where there's no vision that people perish. And that just rang in my head. And on the back side of that, the vision is Jesus. The vision is Jesus. It was just a whisper kind of thought. And my mom had given me a book written by a guy from England named Pete Gregg, and he wrote a poem. And at the beginning of that poem, it says, the vision is Jesus. And that just kept repeating, you know, where there's no vision that people perish, the vision is Jesus, almost like a call and response. And so I just wrestled with that. I prayed with that for a second. And our church had a vision statement on the wall, and it was long and wordy and wonderful. But I just said, Jesus, you are the vision. And all of those old hymns, be the center and be thou Mm -hmm. my vision. All that stuff was kind of stirred up in me in that prayer. And I just said, Jesus, you are the center and you haven't been. And if I'm going to continue, if this is going to continue, you must be the center. And so I just went to my desk and I took out four printer pages out of my printer and I wrote the vision is Jesus. And I just wrote a VU for me, that was vision up. And then I wrote a VI and a VO. And I just resigned that day to say, I don't want to participate with anything where Jesus is not the center. Mm -hmm. And I want to look to him. I want to look more like him. And I want to look with him and see who and what and how he sees in the world. And those four pieces of paper actually became the outline for this book. And that was like 14 years ago. And so I kept those and that became my own personal way of discipleship and discipleship in my family and the way that we oriented pastoral leadership in the church. That's, that was kind of the inner DNA. And along the way, the last 14 years, I've had several people say, you should share that in a different form. You know, you've talked about it in small groups and sermons and conversations over coffee. Um, But a good friend of mine came to me three years ago and said, would you write that down and help to make this possible? But it was that day, really at a desperate place, saying, God, I think I'm done, that he answered with, I was done because I had no vision. Mm-hmm. He, he had stopped being the center for me, and he needed to bring me back to that place. Now, my guess is every believer who's listening would agree with everything that you've said, that Christ should be the center, that uh, that he should be our vision, but may not know how to get from mm-hmm. where we are uh, a little bit shackled into a place where we're confined by what's familiar to us and what's accepted even in our congregations to making him the focus. How do how do we make that transition? How do we begin to live out what we all agree the scripture uh, tells us is what he has in store for what uh, for us, which is so much more than most of us are experiencing? Yeah, it may sound so, so simple, um, but I, I really do think that it's very simple. It's not easy, but I think that it is simple in the sense that for me, I needed that return to my creaturehood, mm-hmm. to that cre- creator-creature relationship. That had to get realigned, and that had to be the starting place for relationship. Him as creator, me as a creature that he made, and that recognition that I was made by him and for him— And I I really think, again, our culture is moving so fast and we want really wonderful answers and and great intellectual answers or powerful action steps that we can take. But I really think that the most powerful thing we can do is return to him as creature and come to the creator and say, I miss you. Mm -hmm. I long for you. I need you. And, and really confess it's a, it's, we talk about it in terms of a creature confession that says you are God and I am not. 
And we have to get to a place where we're honestly saying that from our heart. I think that's the starting point. That's what I found. That's what my co-author, Rebecca Sandberg, found, is that we had attached quite a bit of other armor, other things intellectually, mm-hmm. patchwork uh, theology and culture. So it, it had all kind of encumbered us. And we needed to let that go and come back to a starting place to say, we were made by you and for you. You are God. I am not. And if you remember like the the uh, Atlas carrying the weight of the world, I talk about being alone at the center. If you can imagine with us at the center, the weight of the world is really resting on our shoulders. Which we We've were never designed to never, attempt to carry. Never, ever designed for that. But that's what we have bought culturally. And even in the church, we've started to adopt that posture. And it's just wearing us down to the point we can't breathe. And this confession of the creature is to step out of center. And it sounds so simple, but it's really freeing to say, you are God and I am not. And so here is, here are all of the things that I have been carrying on me that do not belong on my show. I was never made for that. I was made for this relationship and to find life flowing from you. And so I talk about in the book, waiting in a place until that is the honest outpouring of your heart. You Mm -hmm. are God and I am not. And where we can honestly say that to him, um, because in our world, we build much and we, much of our world is created and controlled by us. And it's hard for us sometimes to get back to that place to remember that he is God and we are not. So. You know, what you described earlier as being really very simple but difficult, it runs counter to everything in human history, our natural bent, and yet he calls us to that kind of relief mm. and refreshment <laughs> and relationship that is rare among us. And I think especially, as you pointed out, we have so many things constructed around us that we think we have to maintain in order to please him and to maintain our position in the church and try to maintain a reputation in the culture that we are essentially frantic and, and worn out in so many ways. And I can relate to that, being feeling mm. worn out in so many ways. And yet God is calling us to a flourishing that in the 21st century, at least in America, I think is rare. Yeah. And yet when you, when you go back to that very simple beginning, really, of our faith, where we recognize our need of him and recognize our dependence on him and that he is the one who will bear the weight of the world, uh, what a relieving uh, experience to have that carries us forward. Yeah. I have found so much. We're we're sitting in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and so it's easy for us here. But I have found so much joy and so much help from creation and encouragement in my own life and in the life of others to, to just say, go outside and sit down on the grass and remember you weren't here first, mm. but but actually put yourself in nature and remember it helps us. It's It's his yes. studio. Just get out there. And look up, sit down, find rest, say, you are God, I am not. And just say it over and over and over again. Just wait there until, as you describe, you feel that weight of the world transfer. And really, there's this beautiful space between the lifting of the weight of the world and kind of the settling of the amazing weight of the love of God. That is not a crushing weight, but it's a weight. I mean, it's a humbling weight. And to be in that space where the weight of the world's being lifted and the weight of God's love is kind of resting down upon mm. you. That's it. You are God, I am not. And so if you're listening, 
pull over, go park, go outside. Find, it's such a gift yeah. to get to go out there and let all of creation remind us that he is God, we are not. I'm talking with Jeff Rogers. He's the, no, I'm not. I'm talking with Zach Elliott. I'm going to talk with Jeff Rogers in a few minutes. Anyway, Zach Elliott is the author of Now I See, an invitation to see to, to life to the full. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, we as a nation faced a wake up call on the issue of sex crimes. You'll recall it was just a week or so ago that Jeffrey Epstein, he was arrested for sex trafficking. And then R. Kelly was arrested again for sexual exploitation of children. Now, we'd like to think that this is a problem that uh, is an issue elsewhere, yet it is an issue right here in our country. Epstein and R. Kelly's wealth, their power, um, brought into the spotlight this crime that tens of thousands of men are engaging in all across the country that needs to be addressed and stopped. Well, my next guest is the co-founder of the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking. It's a faith-based national nonprofit, and it's dedicated to ending sex trafficking in America. Well, my guest, Jeff Rogers, as a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Notre Dame, Entered the high-tech corporate world at IBM and made quite a mark uh, for himself. His career uh, has grown. His global division at IBM was acquired by a French software giant, Dassault Systems. And he was given leadership of the entire North American Business Partner Channel, where he utilized extensive partnership and collaboration skills as a vice president at that corporation. But after 15 years in the corporate world, he was left uh, thinking that his uh, focus... Um, should shift to a nonprofit. And it was quite a shift when you consider uh, the kind of work he was doing. So he began his focus on nonprofit ministry in 2011. And uh, the, he started a production company, and the first production, Surrender the Secret, was a post-abortion healing and recovery Christian reality series. Well, following Surrender the Secret, uh, Jeff and his wife Carrie were introduced to the problem of sex trafficking in America, and that led to their latest project, Blind Eyes Opened, a nationwide Christian documentary about the truth of sex trafficking in America. Well, what they thought would be a short-term project turned into recognition of God's calling on their lives to commit themselves to fight against sex trafficking in America. As a result, he co-founded the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking with Kevin Malone. He serves as the CEO, applying his vast business skills to the ministry, and he joins us today uh, to talk about sex trafficking and what on earth can be done about it. Uh, Jeff Rogers, thank you so much for joining us today. I so appreciate your being with us. Thank you, Georgine. We really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time talking about this incredibly important topic with you. This is such an unpleasant issue to discuss, and yet it is one that must be discussed uh, in churches. It must be discussed in our neighborhoods, and more importantly, something needs to be done about it. Now, we have had the impression that this is an issue that takes place in remote places in Asia and other parts of the world, yet this is an issue right here at home. Can you give us uh, a paint a picture for us, if you will, of the problem here in the U.S.? Sure, and you're right about that, that most people really do believe this is an overseas problem, and yet... When we look at the magnitude of the problem, first globally, we can say easily no. There's over 40 million uh, human trafficking victims worldwide in the world today. So there's more slaves now in the world than at any other point in human history. But it's not just an overseas issue. We can look into the United States and see the magnitude of the problem here and the fact that it's growing. And, I mean, if we look at the kids, and that's really one of the specialty focus areas that we have as an organization at the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, 
is the kids. And so based upon work where we've done in communities across the country, we take data from there and extrapolate it across the, the general population. And we can easily say there's over 100,000 kids in America that are trafficked for sex every single day. And so this is a massive problem in this country, and it's only getting worse. And so you're exactly right that we as a society, we've got to start talking about this. We've got to start talking about this from the pulpit more and more. And then we have to begin to discuss, okay, now that we know the reality, what can we really Mm -hmm. do to solve it? And how do we do that? We might think I live in a small community in Oregon. And this sort of thing isn't happening here. Otherwise, I would see it. It would be obvious to me. I'd be able to put my finger on it. And yet it is a crime that takes place in the open that is so often overlooked because we don't know what to look for. Where do we begin? And first of all, acknowledging that the problem exists and acknowledging the possibility that it exists right under our noses in our respective communities. So that's a great question. And so where do we look? Well, the first place we can look is on the Internet. We've seen statistics that say around 70% of all sex trafficking and prostitution is now online. And so you mentioned you come from a small community. Well, I can tell you in a small community in Florida, north of Tampa Bay, in Pasco County, a population of about 500,000 people in the entire county, we launched what we call our Trafficking Free Zone program, which is where the community comes together to fight this problem. And the very first thing we did is we counted online sex ads and so we went onto the websites that are selling sex in the community and in that small community of 500,000 people over three months on just two websites there were over 32,000 ads for sex and we know those ads aren't being posted because they're not being replied to we know they're being replied to and so it is in every community across the country you can look again no further than the internet you can also look at many, many Asian massage parlors that are across the country. You mentioned uh, a couple of folks that have gotten themselves into trouble, and then there's others recently in the national news that have gotten themselves mm-hmm. into trouble at Asian massage parlors, in hotels, on the street. I mean, it is literally everywhere in every fabric of society. I know that with the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, you see this as a supply and demand issue. And if we're going to address that, we have to to take a look at and emphasize the demand part of that equation and also um, to provide safe environments for victims. There, There are two ends of the continuum that must be addressed. What approach are you suggesting we need to take in order to eradicate this scourge from our society? That's a great question. And I'll, I'll tell you, you do mention the demand. I'll say, first of all, when we talk about on one end of the spectrum is helping the victims and rescuing rehabilitation of those that have been trapped up in this. And so the, at the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, two years ago, we opened the very first boys safe home in America for young boys that are sex trafficked. And here, almost no one even thinks about this, but we have one DOJ funded study that says about 36% of all trafficked kids in America are boys. And yet there were no services that we could find years ago. And so we opened the very first boys safe home in America that's located in Florida. And we've got now two years of caring for these young boys as young as 10 years old right now in our home. And so it is just unbelievable the, the, the trauma and what these kids have gone through. But for us, I mean, we're able to share the love of Jesus with them and help them on their path to recovery. But you're right, it's a supply answer to a demand problem. And what that really means is the reason sex trafficking exists 
is because there's demand and therefore the traffickers fill that demand or meet the demand with supply. And so who are these guys and women that are buying the sex? Well, certainly we can look at R. Kelly. We can look at Jeffrey Epstein. We can see these national stories of these very high profile, very wealthy individuals. But what we have to recognize is that it's not just those types of individuals. We're talking about every kind of individual across the entire society. It crosses all socioeconomic boundaries, all races. And so these are basically everyday guys or or women that you don't even know that they're engaging in this. And so to truly begin to eradicate the problem, we do have to go after that demand. We've got to cut the demand off. And when we do, we will begin to see the bottom drop out of the sex trafficking problem across the country. One of the statistics I'm looking at from your website, 90 percent of the victims are arrested for selling sex. Fewer than 10 percent of buyers are arrested. And that is such an uneven statistic. And I appreciate that you um, describe those who are engaged in selling sex uh, as being victims, um, because when you're talking about sex trafficking, this is not something particularly that children are volunteering to engage in. They are victims. And that's why an important part of what you do is uh, providing resource to help them uh, in a safe environment. Yes, they are absolutely victims. And so we, you know, we as Christians, as the body of Christ, we need to stand up. We've got to stand up. These are like the modern day orphans and they don't have a voice for themselves. And so we really do need to stand up and begin to help them. And so it's a matter of, well, how do you do that? You talk about only 10% of the buyers are arrested. And so that has to do with retraining law enforcement to really begin to consider who is the perpetrator and to, to help them with how they then begin to engage in going after the demand in their community. And that really being one facet of our, what we call the trafficking free zone program, which is for a community, giving that community very simple, very pragmatic steps on what they can do to begin to eradicate the demand. And it has to do with sphere of influence. So we start with law enforcement. We then go to the local government. We, we offer businesses and churches, the school system, healthcare organizations, and we use advanced technology and all of these different sectors of society. Then we give them very pragmatic, very simple steps, including individuals, on what they can do to begin to eradicate the demand within their sphere of influence. And the communities that we've seen most successful are those that have implemented this type of an approach that have all these different sectors firing away at demand at the same time. That's when the bottom begins to drop out. Now, I need to take a quick break, but if you can stay with us a few more minutes, we'll, I want to uh, pursue that a little bit more, the, the Trafficking Free Zone program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to talk with my guest, Jeff Rogers. He's co-founder of the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, talking about finding new and innovative ways to combat the demand for purchased sex, to raise awareness of this nationwide epidemic, and to provide safe environments environments for victims. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jeff Rogers. He's co-founder of the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking. He left a very successful and lucrative uh, corporate career uh, being called into ministry, and that ministry led to this subject, which gripped the heart of he and his wife. And uh, their commitment now is to uh, provide safe environments for victims, to raise awareness to this national epidemic, and to uh, come up with innovative and uh, ways to combat the demand.
demand for purchased sex. Now, the statistic that I referenced a few moments ago that that 90 percent of victims are arrested, only 10 percent of buyers are arrested. Is that because um, law enforcement never finds them, that uh, they somehow slip away before the victims um, can be identified? Or is it uh, simply, as you pointed out earlier, having to reeducate law enforcement so that there's an emphasis on the demand. Why is this uh, the st- statistic so lopsided? We would really say it's a re-education that's required. So historically speaking, we see most law enforcement agencies across the country, when they focus on prostitution, their focus really is on those being prostituted. And so that's where that re-education comes from that we're talking about, is to get people to understand uh, and identify those individuals being sold as the victims and the real perpetrators involved in this are those who are buying the sex. They're exploiting that individual for their own personal gain. And so even when we look at the definition of sex trafficking, I mean, if it's an adult over the age of 18, if there's force, fraud, or coercion involved in the sale of that individual for sex, that's sex trafficking. But for kids under the age of 18, all that needs to occur is that there's a sex act that occurs in exchange for something of commercial value, whether that be food or drugs or a place to stay or clothing or what have you, things, basic needs that these kids have if they're a runaway. And so that, by very definition, legal definition, is sex trafficking. Now, you mentioned the Trafficking Free Zone program that um, is a community-wide initiative that goes after the demand that we've been talking about, those who are the buyers Uh, and uh, emphasize that there is zero tolerance for this kind of action. This collaborative approach um, you mentioned is is very successful. How does that um, uh, approach, how is it applied in a community, and how does one begin to seek that kind of program in their local community? So it, it, it really has everything to do with sphere of influence. So we can look at a business, and we share with a business, first of all, a couple statistics. First of all, 2 p.m. is the time of day when most sex buyers are online lining up their sex date for after work. And so that puts on notice employers who have a lot of employees to know, oh, my goodness, these people are they're at work and they're doing this on work property lining up that date. Well, one study that was done up in Seattle, Washington a couple of years ago, when they when they engaged with women who are involved in prostitution, they found 68 percent of those women actually met their client on work premises. When we learn things like this, we, as a business owner, business owners say, well, my goodness, I've got to take care of this because I have a liability. And so we help that business to declare themselves a trafficking-free zone. We educate the entire employee population and then give them sample HR policies that they can implement that puts in place a zero-tolerance policy for buying sex. So basically, if somebody buys sex and they get busted, they can't work there anymore. So that really puts the employees on notice. And so we have similar very simple pragmatic steps for all the different types of organizations in the community, whether it be in churches or the school system or healthcare organizations. And then we also use very advanced technology. So we have internet bots that go out onto the websites that are selling sex and they're engaging these sex buyers in, in, uh, in uh, communications back and forth using artificial intelligence to learn their name, to learn their phone number. We then offer that information to the police And we tell these guys, you've got to stop doing this. And we set up local resources available to help men who are buying sex to stop because we recognize statistically over 50% of men that buy sex actually want to stop, but they don't know how to stop because it's past the point of a compulsion and to the point of an addiction. And so we're offering them places where they can go to get help for sex addiction or porn addiction or drug addiction or alcohol, et cetera, all that feed into the problem 
of sex trafficking. And we're also using very advanced commu- uh, technology with Facebook, for example, where our tech partner has identified with 99% accuracy the Facebook profile of a sex buyer. And so we are blanketing mm. communities with ads targeting these individuals, and these aren't sex ads, but these are ads to get them to think differently about buying sex, and then again, offer them help to get out because we know law enforcement needs to arrest more of these guys and we need harsher penalties, but we also know we can't arrest all of them. So we as a society have got to use very innovative ways to help cut off the demand even before these guys get arrested. Um, you and your wife, uh, Carrie, uh, for a period of time, ran Ships of Tarshish. It's a nonprofit Christian production company out of Tampa, Florida, with a mission to wake up Christians across the country on critical social issues that the church needs to respond to. Your first production I mentioned earlier, Surrender the Secret, was a post-abortion healing and recovery Christian reality TV series. But then you also produced a, a documentary, Blind Eyes Open, a nationwide Christian documentary about the truth of sex trafficking in America. Is that a, a resource that is available for those who need to have their um, blind eyes open to the problem and how we can address it in our own communities? Is that a, a great resource to at least introduce the idea that it exists and that we are responsible to do something about it? Well, thank you so much for, for talking about that, because I'll tell you this, the documentary Blind Eyes Open, we've just finished it. And so literally this project has taken five and a half years. We mm-hmm. would have thought it maybe take a year, year and a half and then move on to some other critical social issue. But what happened was, uh, through this process of the documentary, traveling the country, meeting survivors across the country, and tens of dozens of other organizations involved in this, God really moved upon her, my wife's heart, Carrie's heart, my heart, and we at some point realized we're going to commit our lives to this. And so literally the film has just been completed, and very excited to say that it's going to be released in theaters all throughout the entire country in January of next year. And so it's not yet a resource available, but it will be in January. And we'd love to come back and talk to you about that. But I'll tell you that through the film is where I met Kevin Malone. So Kevin, the former general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and God similarly moved upon his heart about nine years ago. And so he has committed his life to fighting this as as well. And so after we interviewed Kevin for the film, he and I got together and realized we had a, a joint calling to come together and form a new national organization, the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, to truly focus on how do we eradicate this. And so Kevin and I founded the organization three years ago. Well, I want to encourage our listeners to make note that in January, the documentary will be available. But in the meantime, I would highly recommend your website that provides some excellent resources for those who are determined to become uh, aware, to educate themselves, and then to be activists in their community to draw a bright light on this community, on this uh, issue. And that, uh, as you pointed out, that includes the church as well as other uh, institutes and, and, and public policy around the country. I think for most of us, we're probably not um, uh, not aware of the tremendous burden that uh, you bear in taking on this issue. It It is a very challenging thing to take up such an unpleasant issue and to advocate on on behalf of those victims, to know their stories and to see what happens to the lives of young people who have been trafficked in the way that um, your documentary and your organization is required uh, to become aware of. So I, I want to just commit to praying for you and, and thank you for being faithful to God's call, because this is a very difficult but very important issue that the church needs to wake up about and then respond to in constructive ways. And you've provided the resource for that. Uh, and I just want to say thank you. 
Well, I can't thank you enough, Georgine. I appreciate your kind words and also for you taking the stance here to raise this topic topic to this level and put this amount of focus on it. So God bless you for doing that. And I'm, I'm very much interested in talking again uh, late December, early January, when the documentary uh, comes out to make sure that we're aware of uh, when and where we can uh, see it as well. Look forward to that. Thank you. Well, Jeff Rogers, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today. Thank you. God bless you. God bless. Bye-bye. Again, Jeff Rogers, co-founder of the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking on finding new and innovative ways to combat the demand for purchased sex to raise awareness of this national um, epidemic and to provide safe environments for victims. I'm going to uh, place the email address uh, for the, uh, or I should say the website, uh, for the organization so that you can follow up on that because they do have some great innovative resources to help in this effort to eradicate uh, this scourge on our nation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I had intended to talk about a couple of things during this final segment, but received an email from a local pastor, Greg Allen at Bethany Bible Church, in response to a subject we discussed in the final segment of yesterday's program. And he wrote to me, I was very saddened by the report you passed on yesterday about Joshua Harris. He and his wife spent some time last night talking about it and praying for him. He really appreciated Well, we won't go into that. But this morning I read, he goes on to say um, that a noted Christian author and counselor, Heath Lambert, has uh, asked Zondervan to remove Joshua's forward from a future publication of his book, Finally Free. But Dr. Lambert also says that he has personally reached out to Joshua, and I'm grateful for those who know him who are reaching out. In today's Christian post, he cited Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, which says, and I quote, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again, Hebrew chapter three, twelve through 14. And I appreciate it so much. The reminder of that scripture. But Dr. Lambert wrote that in reaching out to Joshua, and I'm quoting, I also communicated my concern for him. Of course, that concern is what is most important here. Much more is at stake in all of this than names on the covers of books. Joshua's statements are a grave concern for his soul and are sobering for all of us who name Christ and have appreciated his ministry. If this can happen to Joshua Harris, how much more do I need to heed the warning of Hebrews 3.12 and take care to avoid an evil, unbelieving heart? How much more care do you need to take? Lambert said, describing Harris as the man who summoned an entire generation to purity. Let's let uh, let that sink in. The prayer for Joshua Harris. The Lord knows Joshua's heart. Was Joshua a Christianized unbeliever who never knew Christ? We do not know, but God does. Is he a Christian who has fallen into grievous sin and is in need of restoration? We do not know, but God does. What we do know is that Joshua Harris is in absolute spiritual peril. He needs our love and he needs our prayers. He has uh, mine and I trust that he will have yours as well. What a sweet response uh, to a situation that grieves the heart. And by the way, this uh, response was found at ChristianPost.com. You can look that up. And again, Mr. Lambert is the uh, author of Dr. Lambert is the author of that response to Joshua Harris. I mean, my heart is heavy. We talked about it, my husband and I, last night and our concern for him. Again, beyond the, the 
influence that he has had uh, in the Christian church and in the culture for a number of years, but for the individual himself. Uh, We've made it a matter of prayer, and I hope many of you as well. It's easy to gloat. It's easy to point a finger and to suggest, you know, this thing or that. But the scripture um, that uh, Pastor uh, uh, Allen and Dr. Lambert uh, draws our attention to, I think, is the best response, at least to begin with, to put us in the right uh, frame of mind and to humble us in considering the the status of our own uh, our own soul. Again, from Hebrew three twelve through fourteen. I'm going to read it once more because I think it bears repeating. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Pray for um, Joshua Harris. Uh, One other thing I will mention, I think I have time for, we've uh, seen all kinds of interesting phases of the moon from super blood moons to full worm super moons to even stunning strawberry moon. I'm not sure what all the distinctions are that makes one one thing and another. But tomorrow, July the 31st, will mark a rare occurrence for Earth's natural satellite, a phenomenon known as a black moon. Now, in these sensitive days, I wasn't sure if I should refer to it as an African-American moon, but it's technically referred to as a black moon. The rare celestial event will occur tomorrow in North America, marking the first occurrence since 2016. The rest of the planet will see the black moon on August the 30th. And although there is... Uh, Uh, No one single definition of a black moon, according to time and date. It's uh, most commonly used to represent the second new moon of a month. This rarely happens outside of leap years, as lunar cycles largely take 29 days to complete. But every 32 months or so, there are two full moons in a month, with the first beginning uh, being known as the blue moon. New moons are not able to be seen as they travel across the sky with the sun during the day, according to EarthSky.org. But the gravitational influence of the new moon and sun combined to physically affect our water planet, which people along the ocean coastlines may notice in the coming days. Well, other meanings of a black moon include a third new moon in a season of four new moons, uh, no new moon in February and no full moon in February. Tomorrow's black moon will also be a, a super moon, which means the new moon happens at the closest point to Earth in its monthly orbit. So if you happen to look up and the moon looks a little bit different, that's because it's a black moon and that's coming Tomorrow, kind of an interesting thing. Speaking of tomorrow, I want to remind you that on the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Casey Pipes, author of After the Fall, the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. Now, you might be scratching your heads. What comeback might that be? We'll talk about it tomorrow on the program. On Thursday, we'll talk with Vishal Mangalwadi. I'm so proud of myself. I just said it right out. Uh, The book he has authored is titled This Book Changed Everything, The Bible's Amazing Impact on Our World. Uh, and it puts into perspective the impact that the Word of God has had in in the world, even at times when it has not been fully embraced or regarded as it ought to be. So we'll uh, look forward to that conversation. And then on Friday, we're going to focus our attention on the lighter side of the news. Also tomorrow, we will continue with our effort to provide um, one listener with a family four-pack of Gospel Sing Live tickets. We're giving them away for the August 16th performance of Gospel Uh, saying live at the Salem waterfront. We're so looking forward to seeing you there. And that's um, 
Uh, that's our first effort, and it, uh, it happens on the 50th anniversary of the longest-running, most popular program on KPDQ for many, many, many years, and that's Gospel Sing. So I'm looking forward to being there along with Clark Hilton and uh, seeing many of you as well. We'll give away our family four-pack uh, tomorrow, the next day, and the day after that. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.